Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Stephen Cohen. He's recognized by his peers as one of the best plastic surgeons in America, if not the world, particularly for his treatment of children and adults with severe craniofacial disorders, and he's a pioneer in regenerative cell therapies used in cardiology, orthopedic surgery, and aesthetics, as well as a gifted artist and inventor. Dr. Stephen Cohen is in private practice in San Diego in the US and a clinical professor of plastic surgery at the University of California in San Diego. Dr. Cohen has a provisional patent on his technique of anatomic and regenerative fat grafting and injectable tissue replacement and regeneration. He also recently submitted a patent for new tools for hydrodissection of subcutaneous tissue during facelift surgery. In this episode, Dr. Cohen shares his insight and experience on how regenerative medicine is used to model the way we age, the future of using our own biological tissue for skin rejuvenation, and the role of regenerative medicine in both prevention, treatment, and now reversal of disease, including aging. While stem cell therapy is not available in Australia for cosmetic procedures, Dr. Cohen's insights provide a preview on the future of aesthetics and surgical intervention. He offers his extensive research and knowledge on repairing the most common harms to the skin, such as sun damage, restoring face volume, and treating loss of firmness. You are going to absolutely love this episode. Welcome, Dr. Stephen Cohen. I'm so excited to have Dr. Stephen Cohen all the way from San Diego joining me on Ageless by Rescue today. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've been stalking you on Instagram for quite some time. Thank you very much. Delightful to be here. So the wonderful episode that we're going to share with our audience today is the new science of facial rejuvenation and the facelift and what a long way it's come. You've pioneered a number of techniques. You've authored, you've co-authored a book on facial rejuvenation and the modern uh, approach to facelifts. And there's just so many questions that I have for you, but let's start with where you are. Uh, You're based in the US and you've been a craniofacial surgeon and a plastic surgeon for a, a number of years. What what led you down the path of reinventing the facelift? Okay. Um, so I, I came into aesthetics kind of by a back door, by accident. Um, originally, I wanted to be a heart surgeon, and I saw a TV program on complex craniofacial surgery. This was in 1984, and it blew my mind at the dramatic changes that in this case, adolescents were undergoing as their facial bones were being shifted and moved so that they were really going from monstrous to normal. And I was so absolutely impressed by that. And having kind of an artistic background, I said, you know, I I think I want to do this instead. I didn't really know any plastic surgeons. Um, In fact, the ones I knew where I was training in general surgery in New York at Columbia 
we didn't like because they were kind of dilettantes and they were a little bit lazy. They didn't want to come in to take care of sick patients. So anyway, I wound up in plastic surgery and um, I did my training at some really good places. And I pretty much um, over the years through my craniofacial background have evolved into primarily cosmetics. And to your point, you know, facial rejuvenation. So in 2001, there were some articles published about finding stem cells in our fat. So in liposuction fat, you could find these cells that were active. And it led to scientists and clinicians thinking about how could they be applied, not only in plastic surgery, but in things like patients who have heart attacks or neurologic disease or aging in general, because stem cells are uncommitted cells. They haven't made a decision what they're going to be. And as a result, because of that plasticity, they can turn into heart cells, they can turn into new blood vessels, you know, they can turn into a variety of different cell types. So that's what intrigued me initially about finding in our own bodies basically medications that could potentially affect our aging. And so, you know, now fast forward, that was very unaccepted at the beginning. People were very frightened about stem cell therapies, or they took total advantage of publicizing it in ways that would draw patients in for stem cell breast augmentation, stem cell facelifts. But it was more the publicity, not the science behind it. And, and some of these kind of got a bad name off the, off, uh, at the beginning. We're now at a point where, in my own mind, what I started to do was say, one, not only do patients truly not understand what these stem cells are, unfortunately, most physicians don't understand what the, they do. And in plastic surgery, which is a more technically oriented field, some of the science we sometimes, you know, it takes time for it to evolve, for people to begin to understand why they're using certain products, why they're doing certain techniques. So with regenerative medicine in particular, what we're trying to do is model the way we age. So let's call it frankly what's happening. You know, our tissue is decaying as we age. And if you look at the various parts of the face, for instance, you know, everybody comes in with only three, three things to treat. They come in with sun damage. So no matter what your background is, if you are based from the Mediterranean, you maybe you're a little darker pigment. If you're from, you know, Norway, maybe you're very light complected. If you're from Africa, obviously, but everybody responds to the sun and develops damage. Two, everybody loses volume in their face to some extent. Some people, it takes longer, some people more rapid. Three, everybody develops laxity. Now, these are all interrelated. My own thought is the sun damages the tissue. It shrivels up the small blood vessels. They begin to shrink the fat around them. The skin lets in more bacteria. Some of the deeper fat begins to degenerate with intrinsic aging and laxity because of facial movement, the layers begin to separate more easily. And you know you wind up looking like you've aged. So can you reverse aging like you would reverse a motion picture. 
you know, can you can you go back in time? Literally, and this is the billion dollar question. I mean, you know, when right. I when I launched the concept of ageless, having had a media platform for you know well over a decade, what I really wanted to, what I got excited about was the studies in genetics and epigenetics and also in stem cells very much so this is something i've been so fascinated with is that there really is an opportunity not only to treat now and prevent for the future but there is an opportunity there is the science now to reverse and so the light bearers of of this study and this science are so important because you really are treating the face or the body uh, as a vessel that we can, you know, not just prevent and treat the now, but we can reverse. What you just said is exactly the whole the whole point of this. It's it's epigenetic modification, and to some extent, we know from birth. You know, if somebody has all of the all of the men in their family died at thirty nine years of age from a heart attack, and you have a son that's born the likelihood is pretty high. And you could do genetic testings and say, yes, the likelihood is very high. And maybe we should put them on Lipitor at age five, not at age 50 when they start developing symptoms or high cholesterol. So the opportunity to change medicine, including aging from one of let's age and then treat you when you're old to how do we prevent this from occurring? because we kind of know it's going to happen. How do we prolong this? How do we, how do we prolong the disease-free interval? Or in the fa- case of facial aging, you know, the, the acquired disease interval, because that's what it is. It's an injury to our tissue that gradually causes aging. So if we take, you know, in some ways, religion has hampered a lot of this stuff because we're all supposed to die according to whoever the God is you believe in. Well, that's great, but it could be that we're 150 years old because we begin to understand how to tweak our cell health to keep them healthy much longer. So that's- And I love I love this conversation so much when it comes to aesthetics because we talk about it with regards to cellular rejuvenation. There's a lot of conversation around that, you know, the the explosion in intraceuticals, collagen supplements, supplements in general, uh, biohacking, which I'm also absolutely fascinated by. I, for example, take metformin, which is diabetic medication. I don't have diabetes. I don't have a history of diabetes in my family, but it's a phenomenal anti-aging medication. So what I'm fascinated about is how did a plastic surgeon come to this field and then transform the conversations we're having around facial surgery and regeneration um, in the field of plastic surgery? Yeah, those are good questions. So for me, when I was, I, I live in San Diego, we are the number two cluster of biotech in the United States. So probably one of the leading centers in the world. So a lot of unique ideas come about here. And friends of mine, when they identified stem and regenerative cells in fat, they brought the concept to me as a clinician because I worked with them on other projects. And when they told me this immediately in my mind, what went off was if we find medications like digoxin in a plant or fungus produces penicillin, right? Well, we are very complex organisms, more complex than plants. So we're bound to have things in us that will be therapeutically useful. 
to us. We already, we cut ourselves, we have cells that repair it. How do we harness repair? How do we harness growth and development and continue to improve our tissues rather than decline? So my first overriding concept was, this is very interesting in our field and the applications in plastic surgery, you know, are manifold. So in facial surgery, again, if you look at decline with what I discussed, and you start to think about volume, volume replacement is done by fillers right now. And fillers have very little biologic activity, a little bit with Sculptra, a little bit with radius on, on skin and tissue health. But if you start to use our own tissue, even if you're not a good responder, I mean, for instance, I could use, your cells are probably really good because you look great. But let's say somebody your same age you know, that you went to high school with has deteriorated more rapidly, probably their cells are not so ideal. So when you start thinking about the variability of these applications, you have to remember we're using your body parts. Absolutely. No, I I understand that. And I think, you know, it's the chicken or the egg, you know, do you make yourself healthy and then use your own stem cells to regenerate your other uh, features? Well, I think you stay healthy and then you use these at at younger ages or eventually you bank them to use at older ages. Wow, I love that. leads to, you know, you keep a healthier cell. So in the the ways I'm looking at facial rejuvenation, I I model it kind of the reverse of of, of a motion picture, rewinding it. And if I look at what happens to somebody, say, over the course of 10 years of aging, I can look and say, in, in, in this location, you've lost a certain amount of volume. I'm very visual. I can look and say, you know, it's about five square, you know, centimeters, and the depth is about X, so the volume is Y. I could replace that exact volume with the same material that's been lost. Okay, so wow. I start to think anatomic replacement. Look at what happens. Look at where the anatomy decays, because it's not uniform. If somebody develops, you know, deep hollowing in here, it's because a certain fat pad, not above the muscle, but below the muscle has degenerated. So if we make a precise diagnosis of the tissues that are being lost, what bone is being lost, what's happening more accurately to the skin, not just, yes, it falls down, but why and how. You know, we know that the ligaments of the face are attached to bone at the cheek level, in the temple, and down here in the mandible, but there's no attachment to bone over the masseter muscle, which allows you to yawn and chew, et cetera. So that movement allows prolapse and a gradual, you know, lacks it in this direction. So it comes down and creates a jail. Well, Put it back where it came from. Realize that the ligaments have stretched. In fact, a very excellent surgeon in Melbourne, um, you know, Brian Mendelson, has addressed some of these issues. Let me ask you, sorry to interrupt you. So let me just get it absolutely clear. If the surgeon, a a talented um, surgeon who understands, you know, the facial aging process or the body aging process, can pinpoint what part of the anatomy is deteriorating you can use your human stem cells 
that are uh, produced and extracted from your fat and you can inject those back into those locations and because stem cells are agnostic, they will reproduce as the original cell of whatever needs to be repaired. So it's almost, if I can use the term, idiot-proof because your body knows what to do with the stem cell if it's reintroduced in the location where it's had atrophy. Is that correct? Well, that's that's partially true because here's the thing: you you need, you know, stem cells themselves offer no volume. So if you put like like you look really good right now. So if you were to use stem cells throughout your face, the effect that you would have is you'd notice your skin felt healthier. You'd feel like the tissues are a little more plump because you're reviving what is existing presently. But yeah. when you've lost those tissues, you have to do two things: you have to replace and regenerate. Right. So, th that's, so that's my question. So in your regenerative, regenerative uh, facelift process, you're going to, you now address both. And this is where your technique is so unique. Is unique. And we've been able to show now both in patients who've had facelifts with these techniques and in patients who've just had isolated regenerative fat grafting that what happens is in contrast to what we see in all of the literature with fat grafts, facial volume declines to about a 30% improvement two years later after standard fat grafting, where you're just putting the fat in wherever it looks nice and you're not really thinking about the regenerative aspect. When With the techniques we're using, when we do isolated fat grafting, we see about a 50% improvement in facial volume it decreases to about 30%, say from seven to 10 months, but by two years with no weight gain in the subject, it improves to almost 80% in a woman or a man under 55. So what's happening is, you know, all of the fat kind of dies, but the stem cells in the fat begin to turn into fat. They also have associated with them many growth factors and, and, and other things like exosomes, which actually talk to the other tissue, they make new blood vessels, they make the native tissue healthier. So in addition to replacing what's been lost with fat grafting, we're now using these regenerative techniques. So what I like to do is make three types of fat grafts. One goes deep below the muscle. So if you're trying to replace a deep fat pad, you're using a more structural graft because you need structure. And is that through surgery? That can only be achieved through, so it, you, you've lifted the plane and then- No, not, not yet. You do it, let, let's talk about just, when a patient comes in with both laxity and volume loss, you need to do a facelift. If a patient just comes in with volume loss, maybe in sun damage, it's an ideal time. You know, if a woman or man comes in and they say, I want a filler under my eye, I want a filler in my fold, I want a filler in my temple, I go, why? Oh, I'm getting hollow, I'm losing volume. What is volume? Not air, it's tissue. I make a diagnosis, I say, it's tissue including your skin, underneath the dermis, the superficial fat, the deep fat compartments, and the bone. That's what's being lost. Absolutely. And you can individualize that on every patient, and you can treat those with a structural graft for structure, a, a microscopic graft for superficial fat that's really just supporting skin health, 
and uh, something called nanofat, which is a stem cell type product that's used for the skin and skin health. And when we do that, instead of a gradual loss of volume, we actually at two years get a gain of volume. So we start to change how we decay. So you talked about three different um, types of grafts. Yes. Can you explain that further for me and, yeah. and how that's introduced into the skin? Yes. So very simple. We make a needle puncture where somebody has some extra fat. You know, it could be a flank or a, or a thigh or wherever. We put some fluid in that numbs the area. And then we harvest the fat just with a, a small little, it's called Canula. a cannula. Yes, yes. And, and a syringe. We take that fat based on the whole size of the cannula. The fat parcel is going to be two millimeters. And that's more of a structural graft. Gotcha. So we set that, we clean that and set it aside. We take another portion of that two millimeter graft and we put it through a little device called NanoCube. So, so we set aside a portion and we take another portion of the two millimeter size parcels and we run it through a little device that has a cutting screen that cuts it down to one millimeter. That's micro fat. That's gonna be used in somebody who has a lot of smoker lines, to replace that if somebody in their hand, you know, for bulk, because we don't want a bulky graph that's going to show. So that's put aside. Now we have what we call milli fat, two millimeters, micro fat, one millimeter. Now we take the micro fat and we take a portion again, but put it through another cutting device. And that cuts it down to one to, to a nano fat, but nano fat that is preserved all the cells because we're not eliminating it. We're not filtering. We're downsizing with just the size of the cell. Yes, I understand. You can also, we've developed techniques where you can harvest directly the nano fat or harvest the other fat, you know, because the whole size of the cannula controls the size of the fat. But, but I know what's coming out of this little nano cube because we've been able to study this. So if we do that, we then have three fat graphs. One goes into the deep compartment. So the deep compartments would be the buccal fat pad, the central deep medial, we call it deep medial fat in the, in the face. This is against the bone, but it's a compartment bounded by like a little fence called, a fasci- you know, like a fascial attachment. And then we slip up to just under the eye bone. This is another fat pocket called the medial subabicularis fat. And the abicularis is the round muscle around the eye, so it's below that. And then there's an area outside. And then there's this deep fat pad called the malar fat pad. And we treat, say, all of those areas with the deep fat. Then we look and we say, okay, here smokers lines So we treat those areas with microscopic fat because that's superficial fat that's above the muscle. The other is below the muscle on the bone. Then after we do the micro fat in all areas that need it, it could be the forehead, it could just be around the mouth. We then take our nano fat. Is this like PRP, Dr. Cohen? Is this the nano fat? The nano fat is just like PRP. The other ones are like, like two different types of fat graphs. One superficial because it won't show, just like you modify fillers so they don't show clumps. 
and one deep because you need structure to push a cheek out or to fill in a fold. So, so you brought up two things that I want to speak to you about. One, am I correct in all the three techniques that you talked about can be done without general anesthetic? It, it would just be local and it's uh, numbing to do, use the cannula, right. and then they're inserted into the skin via injection. So really, right. you've got no it's surgery. Just like putting a filler. Just like putting a filler. That's one. Second question issue you raised, which is the only reason I've always been a little bit concerned with stem cell rejuvenation is clumping. Is it possible that like early fillers, stem cell can clump underneath the skin or in areas? Fat, fat definitely can clump. That's why we want a very fine fat graft closer to the surface. And that's why in the lower eyelid, we don't want to put any fat. We want to use nanofat because nanofat is a cell product. There's no structure to it. It's just cellular. You know, if you cleaned it, you could put it in the bloodstream. But it's so, so because of that, there's no clumping in the areas that you would potentially get clumping. So in the cases I treat, Using this technique, we have no nobody who's re, who's had fat grafts needing to be removed because because they're visible. So um, I'm 47, so I'll use me as an example. Previously, my only my options are threading, PRP, laser, um, filler uh, for structure and volume and tightness. Uh, and then maybe in my early 50s, I would consider a mini facelift. Right. So you're now saying that with this facial rejuvenation technique, anyone who's currently using filler, so depend whatever age you are, you could right. potentially use your own bioproducts and fat exactly. to have exactly. a treatment. So if I was comparing it, as a cost, for example, is it like for like? It's no, because imagine putting 40 milliliters of filler in. That's 40 syringes. Yes. Okay. Maybe that's going to cost you $20,000 for something that maybe will last you up to two years. And as you decay, are not replacing anything, just camouflaging the decay. Yes. What I'm trying to do is reverse decay and make the tissue healthier. So if your decay curve is like this, now it changes like that. It's like somebody saying to you, you know, if you change your diet, you're going to live 10% longer and you're going to live, oh, now I'm going to live to be 90 instead of, you know, 82, right? You go, that's great. Okay. I'll start to eat more cucumbers, right? This is the same thing. This is prolonging tissue health. And so fillers in my mind, then begin to be used for cosmetics and aesthetics. Somebody wants fuller lips for a special event. Somebody wants a real pop in their cheek beyond what their given native structure is. Gotcha. And you might use fillers. So to me, this is a completely different situation. And yes, you pay more for this procedure that treats the entire face and slows down the aging process than you would for fillers. And you, it would be pro cost prohibitive to do the amount of fillers that you would do with fat because the average amount of fat graft is going to be like 30 milliliters, you know, in a younger woman. Well, I mean, I've got something I haven't shared with my audience before. So two weeks ago, I had fat graft to my breasts. 
and I had an internal bra put in. And um, my surgeon said to me, you know, it's going to look great now, but I didn't have a lot of fat on me, so we were only able to put 35 mil into each breast. And he said, don't look at the volume because we really we haven't achieved anything with volume. But what you are going to see is the rejuvenation of the tissue because of the stem cells. Yes. And so that's what you're saying. So yes. you put in 30 mils or 40 mils, which is a lot if you compared it for filler to, to fat, it's a lot. You're going to lose some of that. But what you are going to have over the period of time and adjustment is a pro- prolonging the tissue health, the cell health, the regenerative benefits. And how long will it last? Because I think for my breast treatment, he said it'll be anything from eight to 10 years of rejuvenation. I think it's that it probably is hard to, there's no real information on that. That's a guess. I would say that, um, you know, so far, we've been able to document at least two years. I have patients out five, six years that continue to do well. But again, individual genetics. So let's say you're older. Let's say you're 60, 65, and you do a treatment like this. Your cells are not as healthy. You're not going to see the effects for as long. Gotcha. And you maybe are going to have to repeat this more frequently. So the soft spots for the isolated grafting techniques are you know, really 55 and younger. Understood. Now let's talk about the application of this technique in addition to other techniques and what the new facelift looks like because certainly in Australia it is a less common procedure even though people are desperately curious about it. It has got a bad reputation of drastically altering and particularly around the eye area, that's yeah. the, the giveaway of a bad uh, facelift or scarring. What have yeah. you been able to do and what is the new process and the new technique that you've become so famous for? So I think, you know, one, 95% of women that have facelifts also are undergoing fat grafting and probably 80% of them are undergoing some form of laser. So we treat sun damage, volume loss, and laxity. Laxity with it is treated by a facelift. My preference is to use as short a scar as possible um, so that one, you have to take into consideration the length of a woman's sideburn. In a man, it doesn't matter. But in a woman, if the sideburn is short, then the incision loops around the sideburn because if you make the incision in the hair, pull the skin up, you chop the sideburn off. And people don't notice scars, they notice distortions. Absolutely. Distortion is associated with a scar. Yes, you see the scar. But if you only have a scar, no distortions, there's no way to know somebody had a good facelift. Just no way to tell unless you get super close. So number one is planning the incisions. Two, in the front, we used to put the incision in the junction of the ear and the skin of the cheek. We actually put the incision on the colored part of the ear by just a couple millimeters. Wow. It doesn't drag into this tissue and it's less noticeable because you don't see a white scar between kind of an ear that has some color to it and skin that doesn't. Two, the incision comes behind this part called the tragus. So you don't see this incision in front that sometimes trap doors that. 
And three, you spare this little opening right below the tragus and come around. And then depending on how much skin is in the neck and how much extra tissue is in the neck, because the neck can look terrible, but it can, it can be skin only, and it can be glands and muscles and fat that are below muscles in other patients. So if somebody has a very big neck, you think, oh, I'm going to take out a ton of skin. But the reality is, once you carve out those structures and you redrape the skin, it's now not going like this. It's going like that. So you oftentimes have very little skin to remove. So we've been able to shorten the scar behind the ear in many patients, especially when they're having you know, mini lifts, you know, and when they have mini lifts, still have a very nice impact on the neck. It's just this bar doesn't have to come along the hairline. So there, that's another feature that I think has modernized the facelift. Three, the fact is when you pull a facelift, you flatten the tissue like tightening a, over a bed. Absolutely. So you want that bed to have all the right contour. So we replace the fat during the same procedure, but we do that first and we do the facelift after, but now all at the same time. So you're so, replacing the fat for volume to make sure that the correct contouring is in place right. and you mimic right. the contouring of youth. You do your uh, modified face, facelift technique with the incisions being quite indetectable, and but right. you pre or after the facelift are doing things like laser, PRP, facial rejuvenation with stem cells. When do okay. you do that? So let me... Let me just finish a couple more things about the facelift. So with the facelift, it's not just the skin that we lift. The skin is just simply going to adapt to the underlying tissue. So it's the next layer down because, again, this is fixed to bone. So you don't really change very much here. You deflate. So that with fat grafting is taken care of. Down here, we release this ligament because we want a beautiful jawline. So that's an aesthetic maneuver. But here we go into the deep plane and move the deep plane up more vertical. That's back. what they mean by vertical facelift. So when you talk about vertical, you're talking about the deep plane because this moves. It's not even really truly vertical. It's really it, this tissue moves like this. It moves down like that. So it's really vertical and slightly inward. But it's pretty much a vertical lifting effect. In the neck, it's totally different. So like if you have a nice sharp neck like you do, maybe you don't even open the neck. You know, you can adjust it by, by dealing with the muscle called the platysma and creating a nice band to give you a really beautiful jawline. But if you have a lot of neck tissue, you then make an incision. And we used to make the incision right in the crease. We don't do that. We make the incision about a centimeter below the crease because the contour of the deep neck is related to one, potentially some of the skin and fat, two, the platysma muscle that causes those bands. But yes. under the platysma is an extensive network of fat, submandibular glands, and muscles called digastric. And if those are not taken care of and shaved, then you'll never get a beautifully sharp, defined neck, kind of like you have now, but a lot of people don't have. Dr. So, Cohen, my beautifully sharp defined neck is a product of threads. I just discovered threads uh, a few months ago, and I uh, it was good job. Yeah, it was extraordinary. All right. Well, you did it. You got a nice job done. So, but but some people, you know, they're just so full 
you have to take all that stuff out. So most people are not comfortable doing that. So a lot of the negative aspects of facelifts are they've been skin only, or the next layer down is treated very conservatively. And we want it to be conservative so nobody has an injury or a problem. But once you become familiar with these techniques, they are conservative and they are extremely safe, but they're more effective. So I think the modern facelift really takes into account the anatomic changes that lead to laxity and that lead to volume loss and skin changes. So we're treating all of these things in order to accomplish an end product. And may I ask you, in a modern facelift, are you also uh, treating the eye area and the bleph area? Are yes, you- if, if indicated. So if somebody has extra skin, yes. And and the things you have to be very cautious with are making the diagnosis of who's at risk for getting a bad result. So if you have somebody with very full eyes, it's not because their eye is bigger than the next person. It's because the rim of the eye is recessed. So you have to take that into account and you can't really take very much skin out in somebody like that. You So you modify the approach, go inside the eyelid to take the fat out and you shore up the corner with something called a canthopexy and you make sure that you take almost no skin out because the skin will redrape very nicely. For the upper lid, you know, again, it depends on the individual. For you, you're going to be, I mean, again, don't take this the wrong way because you're a beautiful woman, but as you get older, this may hollow a little bit. Absolutely. As you hollow, putting in some fat in this area softens it and kind of returns it to how you might have looked, you know, when you're even more youthful, if needed. Again, you know, some people you don't do that too because they really look beautiful that way. But some women, as they get older, it starts to look very skeletal. So that's one way to improve that area. Um, But the eyes are always, you have to always be very conservative. and Super conservative. That's the part that can really ruin a face. Completely, completely. And you have to make sure that the lid tone, if it's not normal, that you secure it and you avoid maneuvers that are going to cause this. Because that's the dreaded complication. And it can happen even in very good hands, but it can be corrected. The best way to correct it, obviously, is to avoid it altogether. Dr. Cohen, can I ask you, what is the recovery time for a full facelift and what is the recovery time for a mini facelift, the the type that you're talking about, which is multi-procedural? Yeah, I I would say for a mini lift, um, most people look back to normal within a couple of weeks. With a more extensive facelift, it can take up to a month, social recovery. Now, I have women and men that are out and about at a week and look amazing. And I have women and men that at three months are just feeling like they're looking amazing. So healing can be unfortunately related less to me and more to an individual. But if somebody is a very quick healer, they tend to heal very quickly with facelift surgery. If people have good attitudes, they tend to heal very quickly with surgery because they're already back to life. So they're already, you know, even if they have a drop of a bruise, it's covered up. Other people are lying around, you know, for a month, I don't feel normal yet. Well, I'm just saying, so attitude has a lot to do with recovery and tissue health has a lot to do with recovery. Hence, 
I've encouraged people to think of these things earlier, not later. But again, early for an Asian woman, maybe 60, early for a Caucasian, maybe in their 40s because different aging patterns. I've seen a lot on social media about younger women having facelift. Can I just ask you to also clarify what constitutes a mini facelift? Well, there's a lot of different definitions and all kinds of names thrown about. But I think to me, the mini facelift is when you don't have to open the neck. Because really, most, most of these facelifts are, should be fairly mini, if you will relatively quick. Now, others define mini as not opening the neck, skin only, and tightening the next layer with sutures, but not lifting it. Whereas I, for my minis, I lift that layer. Maybe some people would say that's not a mini. But, and you know, we like to say mini to everyone because that makes them feel like they're not having anything very major. <laughs> um let me ask you, what are you excited about the future of cosmetic enhancement and plastics? I know that, you know, you were a pioneer in the regenerative sciences, but what's, what's next for us? I think next is people realizing that, you know, if they want to take good care of their skin, you know, don't laugh at the Asian mothers that have their kids with little parasols because that's epigenetic modification. They know sun is going to cause melasma and hyperpigmentation, and they start the kids very early. So one, you know, prevention is very important. Two, I think realizing that things like skincare, laser care, it's like going to the gym. It requires, it's not like one product does everything. It requires, you know, an ongoing approach if one wants to be very aggressive about it. Same thing with lasers. People come in, they go, I had a laser. When? Five years ago. Great. I'm a statue in Italy. They sandblasted me, but they put me back outside. So my hands in about a month starting to look a little sooty, right? Nothing magic about that. You know, it has to be ongoing care. And I think also regenerative things that we're talking about, whereas instead of just filling up with fillers all the time, looking at how do we use these strategies to benefit our tissue health, I think are very future oriented. So I think regenerative fat grafting techniques, things like nano fat, something called stromal vascular matrix, um, which is again, like a nano fat, but with more cells and things like exosomes, exosomes are gonna become a big deal in the future. Even in normal cosmetics that you might buy over the counter, my prediction is exosomes are going to become a very critical part. And what are exosomes? So what exosomes are, are a cell can take it, can suck in a portion of its wall or the cell membrane. So it evaginates, you know, it evaginates going inside. It can then break that and that turns into a little called an endosome. That endosome can go and eat or or, or be given from another portion in the cell messenger RNA or peptides that are related to healing. And then the cell can spit that endosome out as an exosome. That exosome lands on another cell, attaches to a receptor, is sucked inside. The mRNA says, 
this is what needs to happen. That's what these vaccines are doing. They're, I was about to say, do you think that we progressed the conversation about aging and through the mRNA uh, vaccines that have been developed at such lightning speed? Is that now in your field a, a bonus that, you know, we might be 10 years ahead of where we otherwise would have been? You know, only because I know doctors and I know organizations like the FDA you're very progressive in your thought process. I feel that I'm very progressive. To me, these are largely harmless agents coming from ourselves, um, but it can take a long time for a therapeutic um, events to occur. Um, it's like immunotherapy with cancer. There are two things with that. One is we didn't really understand how to make that happen. Now you have stage four lung cancer, God forbid, you can stay alive for 10 years, almost like living with AIDS. You still have the cancer, but it's not overtaking you because we've been able to prime the body's own defenses to keep it, you know, fighting it off, like, you know, building a dike so the ocean doesn't spill over. I think as we learn more about exosomes and regenerative techniques, people will be a little less fearful. They'll realize they're using their own tissue to try to not recycle, but to, to, to restore and to maintain and to regenerate in incremental ways. And I think as we get used to that, it's gonna be more of those kinds of treatments, just like preventative medicine is gonna turn on a dime and people are gonna be taking metformin and other drugs that prolong cell health because we won't get injured as frequently. You know, We won't acquire certain diseases as frequently. So I think all of this fits in the schema of what you're talking about, you know, in terms of agelessness and, and how to address these in new ways. And, and I love your analogy about epigenetic modification with the parasols. In Australia, obviously, you know, the sun damage is, you know, our number one concern, not just for beauty and regeneration, but for health. Skin cancer is a, is a huge issue here. Uh, and it really, strangely, it's a modern convention that we're protecting ourselves, you know, 30 years ago when I was a teenager, I was still um, enjoying the sun. You could still go to a sunbed. And now I literally drink SPF 50. I wouldn't dream of even being in my own home with windows without an SPF 30 prote protection. Uh, and, you know, I have an 11-year-old daughter and I'm paranoid about her beautiful skin seeing any sun. And, you know, we're Middle Eastern by background, so we, we have quite good defences in that respect. But I still want to protect her epigenetics by making sure she's taking antioxidants, making sure she wears sunscreen. I think it's, I think it's the way to go. I, I absolutely think that you you know you prolong these things. It's a it's absolutely the way to be. Dr. Cohen, do you have a favorite or preferred laser treatment that you that is your go-to, or do you use a multiple multiple of modalities? We use multiple modalities because you know you have to have lasers to treat redness, you know, pigment, uh, resurfacing, blood vessels, so multiple modalities. And it really depends on the individual. You know, some patients um, you know, present, you know, as I say, Norwegian skin or a lot of you know, the lighter skinned Australians, you know, where they just look like, you know, their skin is completely deteriorated. They need aggressive resurfacing lasers. Somebody who has a little tendency toward melasma, 
you know, that's a completely different approach. You know, even in your daughter's age group, you know, little things like, you know, IPL as they start to see some pigment changes can be helpful, you know, but, and you progress these always along a continuum. So if you have everything in your office, what you're doing is selecting things based on the level of severity of sun damage, volume loss, laxity, and you're using neuromodulators like Botox <coughs> to prevent facial movement from creasing and separating tissue. So to me, it's very logical. And the rest of it is managing your external aging because environmental factors like what you're doing with your daughter, perfect. Internal environment, taking good care of yourself and the genetics, which we do the very best we can to deal with. That's the whole story of facial aging. And Dr. Cohen, in your practice, do you advocate or represent skincare products as well? Do you believe that yes. good skincare can really transform? Absolutely. No, in my practice, we have estheticians, we have we have laser specialists. So it's a multi, it's really a team approach to facial aging. So we don't ever say things like don't use that because it doesn't work, meaning which is translated, we don't have it in our office. <laughs> or don't go to the plastic surgeon, they'll mutilate you. If you have a whole continuum of care, you're choosing things that are best for the condition. You're not choosing things that are best based on your pocketbook. Yes. You can take that for granted because you're delivering good care. You'll always make a good living with good care. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to finally meet you. I knew this was going to be an epic episode. And I just want to, for anyone who's listening, who's just listening to this episode, I do want to encourage you to head on over to our YouTube channel, Rescue, to watch this episode, because a lot of what Dr. Cohen was talking about is is, is visual. And I think you'll get a double dose of uh, information by watching this episode. And I want to thank you so much once again, Dr. Cohen. I will be, uh, as soon as we we're out of our lockdown and we're, we're able to travel again. Uh, I can't wait to come to San Diego and to, to meet you in person. And I'm going to book my um, regeneration immediately. Well, I feel the same way. I can't wait to get down to Australia and it'll be very nice to meet you in person. It would be a pleasure. Thank you again and have You're a very well. Yeah, you too. Take care. Enjoy. Ageless by Rescue is brought to you by Rescue Me Academy, Reignite Your Relationship course. Love your relationship but miss the early days? You're not alone. This course will teach you how to identify your issues, stop the fighting, find what you need to be happy, re-spark intimacy and keep the lines of communication open. Join us at rescuemeacademy.com.au to learn more about the program and to download your first free lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that. 